following the 9-11 attacks in the United States that left 2,977 people dead and 25,000 injured. In response to those attacks, on October 7, 2001, the U.S. government invaded Afghanistan, claiming it was a war on terror. The attacks were said by the U.S. to have been planned um, by al-Qaeda. The attacks on the United States have been planned by al-Qaeda on Afghan soil. George W. Bush launched a military offensive against the Taliban and al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Not only did this offensive kill innocent Afghans, including women and children, it has also festered into becoming an almost two-decade-long occupation and war. The United States, the wealthiest country on the planet, has been bombing, droning, and occupying, occupying Afghanistan, one of the most impoverished nations on the planet. The occupation has taken the lives of at least 2,300 U.S. troops and more than 100,000 uh, Afghan people, according to most estimates. Thousands more have been injured physically and mentally with physical disabilities and post-traumatic stress disorders. The total military expenditure in Afghanistan from October 2001 until September 2019 was $778 billion, this according to the U.S. Department of Defense. This is enough money, according to the National Priorities Project, to feed, clothe, house, and educate all poor and low-income people in the United States. And as we know, according to the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, there are well over 140 million poor or low-wealth people in the United States. On February 29, 2020, the Trump administration and the Taliban signed a peace agreement in Doha, Qatar. The stipulations of the deal included the withdrawal of all U.S. and NATO troops from Afghanistan, a Taliban pledge to prevent al-Qaeda from operating in areas under Taliban control, and talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government. The Trump administration agreed to an initial reduction of its force level from 13,000 troops to 8,600 by July 2020, followed by a full withdrawal within 14 months if the Taliban keeps its commitments. Trump set the deadline for withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan at May 1st of this year. The U.S. also committed to closing five military bases within 135 days and ending economic sanctions on the Taliban by August 27, 2020. The deal was supported by China, Russia, and Pakistan, although it didn't involve the government of Afghanistan, interestingly enough. However, despite the peace agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban, Insurgent attacks against Afghan security forces were reported to have increased in the country. In the 45 days after the agreement, that is between March 1st and April 15th of 2020, the Taliban conducted more than 4,500 attacks in Afghanistan, this according to Reuters. This represented an increase of more than 70% as compared to the same period in the previous year. 
by July 1st, 2020, the U.S. House Armed Services Committee overwhelmingly voted in favor of a National Defense Authorization Act amendment to restrict uh, Donald Trump's ability to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban began in Doha, Qatar on September 12th of uh, 2020. And uh, now on Wednesday, April 14th, U.S. President Joe Biden announced that he plans to fully withdraw troops from Afghanistan, not by the May 1st deadline set by uh, the Trump administration, but by September 11th of this year, ending 20 years of U.S. military occupation. Uh, let us go to a clip now, um, just uh, giving us the situation as it stands now. We went to Afghanistan because of a horrific attack that happened 20 years ago. That cannot explain why we should remain there in 2021. Well, the troop withdrawal can't come soon enough for the Taliban. They want all foreign forces out by May 1st, a deadline agreed to by former U.S. President Donald Trump. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is in the Afghan capital. Yeah, I mean, the Taliban is the key uh, dynamic here. As I said, they recently suggested they weren't even going to go to the peace talks in Istanbul that are a key part of the Biden plan here and just recently suggested this morning that they've got 16 days for the Americans to entirely withdraw. As I say, they made these noises before and many think they do need the legitimacy of transitional government here, as the U.S. is suggesting, alongside the Afghan government to keep aid flowing in when eventually get their hands on the levers of power. This country is struggling to keep its lights on to feed itself at times. And if the Taliban want to control more of it as the actual government in some ways, they're going to need to deal with that. Uh, NATO said, as many expected, NATO allies can't really sustain themselves here without the U.S. infrastructure and muscle, frankly. They'll be leaving at the same time, too. Uh, and the Afghan government are the key real uh, wild card in this. Strange to say that. They've been opposed to the dynamic of the peace process. They wanted elections first before a transitional government. But today there was a very tame and, I think, respectful statement from President Ashraf Ghani, who said he respected the decision and they wanted to make the transition as smooth as possible. This is a presidential palace that fully knows uh, it faces a superior force in terms of the Taliban. They made statements about how they can keep them at bay. They're going to desperately want more assistance for their armed forces, presumably hope that US air power might be at their back, possibly, in the months ahead, or that's definitely not part of what Biden's proposing. Look, America's leaving this war, but the war doesn't end because there are no longer two and a half thousand troops here. It continues for the Afghans in a darker new phase where the insurgency that caused so many lives to be lost may now be calling the shots. So this is, you know, as you say, not something in the forefront of many American minds. And it'd be interesting to see quite how the world pays attention to it now the international presence draws down. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reporting there from Kabul, Afghanistan. NATO's Secretary General says the troop withdrawal is not the end, but the beginning of a new way of working with Afghanistan. He says allies must turn from combat forces to diplomacy, economic tools and humanitarian aid. Our drawdown will be orderly, coordinated and deliberate. We plan to complete the withdrawdown for all our troops within a few months. Any Taliban attacks 
on our troops during this period will be met with a forceful response. Now uh, it is time to uh, bring our forces home. We will uh, work very closely uh, together in the weeks and months ahead uh, on a safe, deliberate, uh, and coordinated uh, withdrawal of our forces from Afghanistan. But even as we do that, uh, our commitment to Afghanistan, uh, to its future, uh, will remain. The U.S. Secretary of State also pledged to stand with the people of Afghanistan, especially those who helped U.S. personnel. But he dodged a question about Afghan citizens seeking asylum in the U.S. All righty. Uh, there you go. That was a clip from uh, CNN. What I'd like to do now is to welcome Matthew Ho, senior fellow with the Center for International Policy and a member of the Eisenhower Media Network. He is a 100% disabled Marine combat veteran, and in 2009, he resigned from his position with the State Department in Afghanistan in protest of the escalation of the war. Matthew, welcome. Hi, good morning, Margaret. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so Matthew, you did that protest, uh, resigning um, about the escalation of the war. Your reaction now to the announcement of a complete uh, troop pullout, or what we're told will be a complete uh, troop pullout by September 11th? Well, this is potentially good news uh, for the Afghan people because foreign forces need to leave in order for the peace process to go forward. Uh, the Af Afghanistan has been at war for more than 40 years. Uh, this war begins in 1978, so a full year prior to the Soviet Union's invasion. You know, by the time the Soviets invade in December of 1979, uh, 100,000 Afghans have already been killed in the fighting. So this is a tragedy uh, and that it has been going on for more than four decades. Uh, the suffering of the Afghan people is just unimaginable. And so in order for this peace process to go forward, which is the first formal peace process in Afghanistan in over 30 years, um, foreign forces need to leave. Now, the concern, of course, is how will the Taliban react to the United States staying past the May 1st deadline? Um, so what you have here is, you know, I, I'm concerned, a lot of people are concerned that uh, any action by the Taliban, you know, say the killing of U.S. troops, the shooting down of a U.S. helicopter, et cetera, will cause the Biden administration to stop its withdrawal, right? You know, I mean, you can imagine, say, uh, say you say a U.S. helicopter gets shot down, eight Americans are killed. You can imagine what Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, Jim Imhoff, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, Joe Manchin, right? You know, you can imagine what they are going to say. And then what will be the political force on Joe Biden at that point? And will that cause the uh, withdrawal to end, which would end the peace process? Um, and, if, if, you know, the, 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 the real danger here, Margaret, is that if this peace process ends and violence begins again between the United States and the Taliban, um, there's certainly, and one thing I want to make clear to people is that just because the United States has not been as militarily engaged this last year as it has been, that does not mean there's been a shortage of violence in Afghanistan. Uh, there is, are still record or near record levels of violence in Afghanistan uh, occurring. Uh, 
literally every day. So the danger being, though, that if this resumes with uh, active warfare, you know, the United States resumes it the way it's, it's positioned in Afghanistan as it was, say, two years ago, then, you know, how do you even begin a peace process after that, right? That violence then becomes exponential. Uh, the hardliners on all sides, whether they be American, Taliban, Afghan government, who do not want to see the war to end, you know, they're the ones who benefit. So it is potentially good news, but it's also very quite precarious. Yeah, and also, um, just recently, the Taliban have announced that they are not going to return uh, to the peace process, the, the discussions, uh, simply because the United States failed to meet its May 1st deadline. Uh, do you think it was a mistake for the Biden administration not to move forward with that May 1st uh, deadline that had been set by the Trump administration? I mean, there's a lot to... Um, criticize the Trump administration for, but a lot of people are saying, well, this was actually, uh, a, a, from the, an anti-war perspective, a good move by Trump. Correct. Matthew. I mean, I don't want to give, I don't want to give Donald Trump too much credit because remember he did escalate the war. He, he did very much say what like Richard Nixon did uh, in Vietnam, where he escalated the war, increased the bombing, um, and then negotiated. Uh, what Trump accomplished with the Taliban uh, literally could have been accomplished as soon as he came into office. Uh, certainly, President Obama could have accomplished the same thing. Uh, President Bush could have accomplished the same thing. The Taliban have always been willing to talk, and the, the lie that they have not been wi willing to talk is undercut by all types of evidence, all types of statements from the Taliban, just by the fact that you see how quickly the Taliban agreed to talk with the Trump administration, right? So um, the, the, the problem, though, as you're saying, though, is that the Taliban have now said we're not going to continue with these talks until, the, you know, you, you violated the agreement, you broke the deal. Um, you know, and one of the things that really concerns me, Margaret, and I think people really need to look at this, uh, is that did Joe Biden not make the May 1st deadline because the Pentagon refused to? The, when, 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 when a few weeks ago, Joe Biden said, we cannot make the May 1st deadline because of logistical or tactical reasons, which is completely untrue. You're talking about 3,500 First of all, the United States military has known for more than a year that there's a May 1st deadline. There is no reason why they couldn't have been prepared. Additionally, as soon as Joe Biden comes in off and, that, and asks about this, he now has, the military now has four months to move 3,500 troops out of the country. There, there is no, as someone who used to do this, uh, as someone who was in both wars, um, who has done planning, there is absolutely no reason that 3,500 troops could not leave Afghanistan in that time. So my concern is, did the Pentagon refuse to do this, which I think is uh, symptomatic of a much broader crisis we have in this country in terms of our relationship with the military, uh, our relationship with civilian control over the military, of course, how much money we spend in the military, our policies, our priorities, etc. 
Right. And much is being made now of uh, the fact that uh, Biden uh, is being criticized for falling down on the issue of immigration, of um, people who perhaps had assisted the United States in these various wars. I mean, Afghanistan, of course, is Iraq, um, also Syria, and that people were now expecting to be approved to come to the United States as they face danger in the country where they are. And apparently, the Biden administration, for some reason that isn't being given, isn't doesn't seem to be moving forward on that front. Any thoughts on that? But also, um, the fact that some people are saying that the U.S. will you know, rather than fully leave Afghanistan, will be relying on a shadowy combination of clandestine special uh, forces, Pentagon contractors, and covert intelligence operatives, and that what is really going on is that it's just a changing of uniforms, but that presence will still be there. Any thought on both of those? Well, with, refugee, with, with the refugees, with, with the people who work with us, um, it, 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 if, again, I think if you know these people, it, it, whether they be Democrats or Republicans, um, they are not men and women of principle. Um, they are politicians. Um, and this, mm-hmm. this, this goes for those who are appointed into positions, say, like in, 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 in Joe Biden's case, uh, men and women like Jake Sullivan, Avril Haines, uh, Tony Blinken. Um, the idea that they somehow have an obligation to other people's wives is really lost on them. I, I really do believe that. Uh, and so it's easy to see. It's, it's then, if you understand that, you can understand how these people can not do all they can to honor these agreements we made with people. And you can, you can make the case that, well, there was never any signed contract or legal agreement. But that is anyone who's been in these circumstances, who has been in these wars, um, the betrayal of these people is as uh, is a testament to really the immorality uh, of our nation. Um, it really is. Uh, as with regards to uh, your second point, Margaret, it, that's very that's very key, uh, and it reflects a shifting nature, an evolution in American warfare. And we have seen this over the last decade. We've seen in, say, uh, say in the Syrian war, where the United States did not put large amounts of ground troops into Syria. There are a number of reasons for that, but one of it is because of the way that the Pentagon wants to wage these wars. Uh, they want to use proxy forces. So in Syria, we, well, we tried to use jihadist groups like the Islamic State, of course, but we also tried to use what we call the moderate rebels, but we also used Kurdish forces. In Iraq, to defeat the Islamic State, we use the Shia militia, the Iranian-backed Shia militias. And then what we, what the United States provides is air power and firepower and commandos. So I think what you're seeing with, with in Afghanistan is that, uh, is that evolution in policy where there will be those unacknowledged forces that are there, those commando forces, whether they be uh, military or CIA, uh, and there'll be large numbers of proxies. Some of them will be contractors. It's interesting when you mentioned the number of Americans killed in Afghanistan. If you look at the work that the Brown University, uh, the uh, Watson Institute, the Cost of War Project, 
they have done a lot of work on this, and so there have been 2,300 Americans or so killed in, in Afghanistan. There have been an equal number of American contractors killed in Afghanistan. So when you look at the number killed in Afghanistan, the actual number killed in action comes closer to 6,000 than 2,300 because you have to include the contractors. There are, right now, there are 3,500 American troops in Afghanistan. There are 17,000 contractors. Oh, my goodness. So, right, so you, you have this. That's another way that these wars are hit. These wars, of course, are outsourced. Half the Pentagon budget goes to contractors. Right, half the Pentagon budget doesn't go to for, for paying for, uh, for for troops and for their housing and their meals and you know their their health care or whatever. Half the budget goes to contractors. So you know, and, and in the the other part of this evolution of policy, this gives the Army and the Navy and the Air Force uh, exactly what they want because now the Navy can concentrate on putting aircraft carriers off the Chinese coast. Right, this allows them. To purchase, uh, we are going to be the United States will be purchasing um, a total of, of 12 new aircraft carriers that cost more than 13 billion dollars a piece. Our new submarines will cost more than eight billion dollars a piece. By leaving Afghanistan in this way, it allows our military to focus on the big budget uh, wars that they want. So the same thing with the Army. The Army is able to have tanks right on the border of Russia, right? This is what the Army wants. So I, I think when you look at um, this, this keeping of these, this, as you put it quite rightly, shadow force in Afghanistan, I think it's important to understand the larger evolution of, a mil of American military power uh, policy and the way the Pentagon wants to, wants to wage war. And in this sense, what really you're, you're seeing is you're seeing that all parts of our military are getting what they want, right? The, the special operations and the CIA guys, they're getting the wars they want. The Army is getting its potential war with Russia that it wants. The Navy and Air Force are getting its potential war with, with North Korea or China that it wants. So again, you know, this is referencing back to what I said about, you know, was there, was the, was, was the military defiant of Joe Biden and Donald Trump in terms of pulling out of troops in Afghanistan? This really shows that we have a very real crisis here in this country in terms of who's controlling the military and who's actually creating policy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, many people make the case that while one could see a notable difference, for example, between Democratic and Republican administrations in se several areas of domestic policy, as we're seeing now with Joe Biden, that there is really very, very little difference um, with U.S. policy when it comes to foreign policy, um, whether it is the Democrats or the Republicans. And it, it certainly does seem as though, look at the places where the U.S. have intervened. If you look at Libya, you look at Iraq, you look at Syria and now Afghanistan, I mean, those countries have just been a, a mess, a total mess. Um, so one has to wonder all of the billions of taxpayer dollars that goes into uh, these uh, kinds of uh, interventions and, and wars. As the National Priorities Project says, that could uh, feed, clothe, house, 
and educate all impoverished and low wealth people in the United States. So this was a point that Martin Luther King made in another way so very long ago when he was roundly criticized for coming out against the Vietnam War. Well, Matthew Ho, we are going to keep an eye on all of this and likely we'll be calling on you again uh, to see how all of this unfolds. But you certainly shared a lot of information that I certainly didn't know and likely a, a number of our listeners did not. So we want to thank you for that. Thank you for your expertise. Thank you for your work and for joining us. Matthew Holmes.